Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, I talk with Ched Spellman and Madison Pierce about a conference they recently presented at on pseudepigraphy and anonymity in the New Testament. So thinking about authorship in the New Testament, who are the audiences, how can we tell who the authors are, who the audiences are, and what the purpose is of many of the New Testament books. And so we talk about that today, as well as some bigger questions about the importance of the canon and the importance of how the church received the biblical books in the early church. As always, we're brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about that English Bible translation. And now my conversation with Chet Spellman and Madison Pierce. But first, no big deal. Chet Spellman, Madison Pierce, fan favorites, favorites of mine. Glad you guys were on the podcast today. Hello, hello. Hey, thanks, Brandon. <laughs> that, was, that was the worst, uh, that was the <laughs> least energetic intro that we've been a part of. So. <laughs> All right, so uh, you guys were at the, what is it, the International Library for Biblical Research, I think is what it was called, uh, and you guys were invited out there for the uh, linear, at the Linear Theological Library. And uh, according to Facebook, it was called the International Library for Biblical Research. So that's that's what I that's what I saw. Um, so you guys were there to talk about pseudepigraphy and anonymity, which every time I hear the word anonymity, I think about um, Finding Nemo whenever he asks him, the teacher asks him where he lives, and he says anonymity, anonymity. You guys remember that? I thought it was, yeah. So our <laughs> intro was bad, but your segue to the conference—it's great. It's all going well. <laughs> Top tier. Go- okay. You know, you no think you deal. think when you bring on two people that you have probably better rapport war- with in real life than anybody on earth, and this is what I get out of the two of you—is is, uh, <laughs> no rapport whatsoever. So, um, okay. What I want to do is uh, we're going to kick it off. Uh, this is of all the podcast episodes I've done in like three years on church grammar. I think pseudepigraphy and anonymity is probably uh, I'm the le- the most out of my depth. Uh, so what I'm going to let you guys do is primarily kind of run the conversation, um, talk about what the conference was, and then kind of talk about your two papers and interact with each other. Because uh, I think it's a really fascinating topic. I just don't know enough about it to uh, to, to lead the conversation as much as I'd like. So, um, Chad, maybe you could just give a little bit of an overview of what the what the conference was about, what were some of the big ideas that were being talked about. And then Madison, uh, Madison, you got to talk about authorship of Hebrews, which is just like the biggest shiny glittery softball ever thrown to me in the history of mankind that we get to, that we get to ask you about uh, authorship of Hebrews. So, uh, so uh, I'll let you talk yeah. about that and I'll let you guys interact. So Chad, why don't you kick it off just by talking a little bit about the conference and what kind of the big ideas were and stuff like that. Okay, sure. Um, yeah, it was at the Lanier Theological Library in Houston, which is a just kind of an oasis of scholarship and style uh, in the middle of the Houston suburbs. Um, so it's kind of an interesting, uh, beautiful location. Um, and then the, the conference was a relatively uh, small conference with um, 30, or, 30 or 40 participants. Um, and uh, the theme of the conference was, does it matter who wrote the, the New Testament? And so working through issues of uh, pseudonymity, uh, anonymity, and then uh, pivoting towards the, the underlying subplot of the conference was uh, pastoral implications uh, of some of these discussions in the academy. Um, and so th- there were uh, 
two major parts of what people were talking about is one, some of the debates about pseudepigraphy uh, and authenticity, um, which bleeded, uh, bled into discussions of authorship, um, historical reconstruction, the history of early Christianity. Um, so in some ways, a lot of the conference was designed to sidestep some of the messiness of the debates and focus on uh, pastoral implications. But I think one of the um, themes of the conference was that these a lot of these questions are uh, interlaced and interlocked. Um, so working through uh, the question of authorship uh, is fraught with all kinds of uh, baggage, but also all kinds of uh, connotations. Um, so people from a variety of perspectives were there. So we had um, Old Testament professors, New Testament professors, um, people who had uh, you know, published mountains of work on uh, the backgrounds of uh, the Gospel of John, like uh, Paul Anderson, or uh, the biblical canon like Lee Martin McDonald, uh, and then uh, doing work in early Christianity like Simon Gathercole and uh, brilliant Hebrew scholars like uh, Madison Pierce. <laughs> um, and then there was, you know, some people that just kind of straggled in after the conference already started, uh, like myself. Um, but uh, there, in one sense, there was a lot of overlap in the conference. A lot of uh, some of the paper titles at first I thought was going to be like uh, seven or eight of us giving the same exact paper. <laughs> um, however... Uh, I thought it was interesting uh, because of the uh, hermeneutical and historical uh, issues that are involved here. Uh, a lot of it depends on um, starting points and presuppositions. So it was interesting to hear uh, different people coming from different places and social locations and um, with a different set of concerns uh, addressing the same questions of authorship uh, New Testament canon formation, the history of early Christianity, um, and the f design of the conference was, uh, you know, spiked my one imposter syndrome and social anxiety because it was uh, like close quarters combat. I, I initially thought it was going to kind of be a mini conference where we kind of give our paper and then kind of dodge a few questions and then fade it to the background, but it was, um, it was kind of like a think tank, so all the people that were there were also participating in some way. So you couldn't like escape uh, after throwing some uh, flaming arrows at anybody. Um, so, but that meant that uh, some of the questions or pushback on uh, one paper or one discussion uh, kind of circled back around. And I learned a lot from not just people's papers, uh, but also the questions that they were asking, the objections they were raising uh, and the kind of, points of resonance. Uh, so I thought that was uh, an interesting uh, part of the format, uh, but then also uh, just this issue of uh, authorship um, is a perennial uh, and fruitful area. Uh, sometimes it's a debate that gets kind of into the same lanes, kind of get into some ruts uh, about the same uh, types of discussions and debates. Uh, but in, in some ways, it was very, uh, it's an interdisciplinary question, so it kind of prompts a lot of interesting questions. Um, so that's kind of kind of the uh, overview of what we were doing there. All right, so Madison, you presented, as I said, on authorship of Hebrews, which is, 
I mean, every time you're on this podcast, if anybody listens at all, they know that that at some point in every discussion, I ask you who the author of Hebrews is. So, uh, but you the were most, you were actually set the up most really boring troll of all time, <laughs> and yet here we are with you presenting an academic paper on the issue. So, worked out in my favor. Um, so, why don't you talk through a little bit of yours? Because really, what you're dealing with is. Uh, the fact that we don't know who the author is, we don't know who the recipients are, and sort of how that affects how we read the book. So talk through a little bit of kind of your big idea, big thesis, and then I'll let Ched sort of uh, respond and interact with you and let you guys talk through some of that. Yeah. Um, And by the way, if I meet somebody on the street that has listened to your podcast, they ask me immediately who wrote Hebrews. (laughs) So it is a big part of my life, and I I just don't know what to do with that. It it Um, is awesome that you've told me more than one story about some random person uh, making a joke about that. So it's good to know that my listeners are are taking care of it. Yeah, my listeners are taking care of taking care of me out there. All right. Um. So. My paper, the the writing of my paper was a little bit strange. So first of all, I mean, the conference looked really cool. I, I'm always looking for a chance to get back to Texas. So even though, you know, authorship is not my primary thing, I thought, well, this is a chance to go somewhere cool and to be back in Texas. And um, so, you know, I'll put something in or whatever. And I'm really glad I did because, it, you know, as Chad said, it was a really enriching experience. And if nothing else, it was fun to hang out with everybody for a few days. Um, but as far as my paper goes, you know, so I kind of went into it and I wanted to say, like, how do I not repeat the same old boring stuff about authorship and basically say, here's what so-and-so thought and here's what so-and-so thought. And at the end of the day, we have no idea what's going on here. Um So I tried to think about what some of the more interesting angles were, which one would be, you know, why would an author provide an anonymous composition? Um, And I don't know that I even got toward, you know, I don't think that I answered that question as well as I would want to because I got a little distracted and I'll come back to why in a minute. But then the other thing I wanted to do was to talk about the anonymous addressees, those who have now been called Hebrews. Um, because I personally think that the title Hebrews, which generally would refer to somebody who is either he- uh, a Hebrew-speaking Jew or um, somebody from a particular period in Israel's history, and those are the two kind of dominant uh, definitions that we see, though there are others, um, neither of those likely applies to the audience and you know, addressed by Hebrews. And in fact, um, I, I, like many others in, in modern scholarship, don't actually think that Hebrews is written to a predominantly Jewish congregation. And so I was thinking, you know, what do we do with that? And I've, you know, Rob Wall and some others have kind of posed this question and wondered, you know, what does this paratextual feature do? You know, paratext in terms of the manuscripts. Um, so I was looking at some of that. Um, But what was interesting to me is um, in trying to answer this question about addressees and why the title might have been applied, I did end up getting into the authorship thing because one of the questions wasn't necessarily who wrote Hebrews, but why do people say this person or that person or that person wrote, wrote it? And so it was more about what the kind of rationale was in early Christian literature, like Paul must not have put his name on this because the Jewish people had a bias against him. Or Paul didn't put his name on this because he didn't want to step on Jesus's territory because Jesus was the apostle to the Jews um, or the messenger to the Jews. He didn't want to step on Peter's toes. Like these are all explanations that we get in early Christian literature. And so I ended up 
on this kind of rabbit trail towards authorship, but it was supposed to be in service of this other kind of bigger question. So that's, I'll stop there, but that's the, the gist of it. All right, so Chad, what was, uh, you were there for the paper, I'm guessing, right? You guys were all in the same room for the most part. So what are some of your um, maybe questions or interactions with uh, Madison's paper? Because there is a lot going on there in terms of who wrote it, why they wrote it, who received it. Uh, so what are some things that stuck out to you that you wanted to interact with Madison on or, or ask her about? I did think the um, one I thought it was interesting take on uh, the title uh, to the Hebrews and then the question of um, different people at the conference took different angles on the uh, anonymity or authorship question. So I thought it was a helpful dialogue partner or dialogue concept to think not just about anonymous authorship, but thinking about the way that anonymous uh, addressees are just thinking about the effect uh, that it has on us as readers uh, when we assume something about um, who the, who the, uh, the intended recipients are. Um, so thinking about the title as a paratextual feature that relates Hebrews in one sense to the Pauline corpus, uh, very similar to the other uh, titles of the uh, Paul's letters, but also to this uh, a general address uh, uh, to the the way that the Catholic epistles start their letters. Um, even just thinking about a theological characterization of the author uh, audience. So as Madison dis discussed, um, if you're thinking, if you're taking your cues for audience not only from uh, the title but from the internal indications, the way that the author is characterizing uh, his readers. Uh, so could you say a little bit more about what you mean uh, by, like if we're thinking, uh, is your reflections uh, purely on uh, thinking about what the Hebrews could mean? Or uh, what would that, how would that change if you're thinking about the way that the author himself characterizes uh, his listeners? Yeah, that's a helpful question. So one of the reasons that I think Hebrews is such a strange title for Hebrews, I'm, so I'm going to approach this question in a slightly different angle, but I, but I hope I'll answer you well eventually. Um, one of the reasons I think that title is so strange is because the author, unlike Paul in particular, uh, doesn't really use ethnic language to refer to anybody within the, the text. He doesn't talk about Hebrews or Jews or Gentiles or anything like that. Instead, he talks, he addresses those who are within a family of God. And so, of course, in our under, historical understanding, we would take the family of God to be the Jewish people. So it makes sense that we would kind of understand these people, at least figuratively, to to be in that group. Um but Hebrews doesn't appear anywhere that that particular ethnic designation, and then but neither does Jews or anything like that. So to pick that terminology, um, it, that strikes me as rather strange. And so that was one of the the points for me is kind of thinking, okay, what about this composition has led someone, um, presumably not the author, but somebody, to put this title on it? And so. I would take it to be the case that they, one, might think that that reflects the actual addressees, that they would be uh, those who are, as I said, um, Hebrew-speaking Jewish people. Um, 
or that they may have some historic ties to uh, to the people of God from the exile or something like that. But one of the reasons that that first one is so interesting is because they, um, for two reasons. One, the composition is obviously in Greek, and it's in a very advanced Greek. And in fact, a lot of the argument is is based on Greek, the Greek versions of scripture. They don't work with the Hebrew version because it introduces various wordplay or vocabulary kind of distinctions and things like that. But the second thing is, and um, Chad and I talked about this a little bit um, at the conference, so he, uh, you know, he's heard this before. But what I find really interesting is that if we look at the history of reception, um, some some of the conversations around who wrote Hebrews in the early in the early church, um, they talk about this being a, a Hebrew composition from Paul or some kind of um, something that existed in in Hebrew at some point via Paul that was translated by someone like Luke or Clement. So then it becomes Greek. And so you could say, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. Then they could be Hebrew-speaking people because whenever Paul put this together, it was a Hebrew composition. But what I was mentioning to, to Chad is that um, we actually see in, in the Western church, in Rome, and specifically like in Tertullian, um, a mention of this letter as the letter to the Hebrews but with no attribution to Paul. And so I think it's possible that the title and the Pauline tradition are independent of one another. We can't say for sure, but it's interesting that in the Roman church, we don't see anybody attributing Hebrews to Paul for quite some time. In fact, it's either, you know, it's, it's, there's no author affixed or, you know, it's Barnabas or something else. And so, um, that that's kind of these are the dilemmas that I was trying to address and I don't know feel free Chad if you want to follow up if I didn't get to the the specific nuance of, of what you wanted to hear more constructively <laughs> oh no that was that was good yeah um okay so one of the questions that I was just thinking about as you guys were talking is um it, it, are you at the point with Hebrew scholarship, and I know the authorship thing does become a joke, but there is sort of a thing where it, there's always seems to be there's a quest for the historical author of Hebrews, you know, uh, or there's a quest for the audience. Are you, at the, as you're going through your paper, uh, as you're thinking through that, is there, a, do you propose an audience and say like, well, this actually maybe is more likely in the audience, or uh, there's something in here that helps us understand what the context is of why this is being written and why these issues are being addressed? Or is it kind of like with the author, it's just we're not going to ever really have a, a strong answer on that? What would you say to that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I do have some positions that I hold to loosely, uh, even about authorship. I, I do actually have an author that I think is the most likely of the options. Um, but I'll never tell. Um, Apparently, you'll never tell. Maybe if I can ask yeah. you in just the right serious moment, at just the right moment, you don't think I'm trolling you, maybe I can get you an answer. So. Yeah, maybe. It'll slip at some point. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You did but, say he, um, so that narrows out Priscilla, so that's good. <laughs> Let's start there. Oh, I wish it were, but yeah. Um, so uh, one of the reasons that I find the historical background of Hebrews so difficult is the, the, the question that I have the most difficulty with is actually the date. Um, I have a sense that Hebrews is pre-70, but I can't tell if that's actually the product of my kind of evangelical conservative bias, um, because there's because it looks like something like Romans, you know, the appeals to scripture, the argumentation, stuff like that. Um, 
but I mean, there are various features of the text, like the appeal to the tabernacle rather than the temple and other kinds of things that would work rather well with a post-70 dating. And in fact, the the extent of persecution, and, and there is a discussion about, you know, are these Christians actually experiencing something significant or is it rhetorical or are we reading too much into it and thinking they're being persecuted more than they are? similar to conversations about like first Peter and stuff. Um, I, I personally think that even though he says, you know, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. Um, I do think that there's really significant stuff going on there. I mean, they're being imprisoned. They're having their property confiscated. This is all in Hebrews 10. Um, so this is not nothing persecution. This isn't just kind of like, Hey, you're dumb. You're a Christian, you know, like them getting kind of mocked or whatever, which some would argue is, uh, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm lacking nuance here, but some would argue is something more akin to what's going on, like in first Peter. Um, so that, that's one of the things that would fit better with a later date if it really has escalated to a pretty significant point. And so, um, I, I do think that a Roman, uh, that, the recipients being uh, in Rome makes sense for various reasons, including the the concept of persecution and stuff. Um, but I, I don't hold to that, um, you know, for really tightly. And I try not to, uh, when I'm interpreting, um, to locate my interpretations or, or to tie my interpretations too closely to any of these particular positions. Um, because I don't want it to be a kind of like Jenga set where, if you know, if we pull out Roman provenance, then all of a sudden, like everything I've said about Hebrews, like completely falls apart because I just can't hold it that closely. And I do have concerns about like mirror reading and stuff like that as well. So, yeah, you've mentioned too on authorship, uh, you've mentioned before, like, uh, part of the reason why we come up with these different authors is because we like we just choose from a set of people who we already know. You know, the author of Hebrews could yeah. be somebody we've never heard of, but we always think right. of it being somebody who we know. Maybe an associate of Paul, you know, that sort of narrows it down to a handful of people that we know were with him a lot, that type of thing. Um, do we do the same thing uh, in some sense with the audience, right? I mean, you're talking about even it being called Hebrews, um, but just thinking through some of those issues of well, we know kind of what was going on in the first century in Rome, so we can generally say you know, persecution was not surprising. We all know persecution happened, for example. Um, so those kind of things we're already, I guess, importing, importing a little bit. Um, what would you say is the biggest, maybe the biggest problem or the worst thing that is imported into Hebrews that you've seen uh, in scholarship or just maybe assumptions that you're like, everybody says this, and I just don't think that's the case at all when it comes to particularly yeah. maybe the audience or, or what's, what the purpose is? Yeah, it's a, it, it does have to do with the purpose. I think that the most problematic uh, or most troubling conclusion that the majority of scholars come to is that Hebrews is a book uh, written to people who are considering reverting back to Judaism. Because, of, and I, I hate that for a couple of different reasons. One, I think that that's a, 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 a problematic construal of early Christianity at this point. Um, because it assumes that these people are not, they don't consider themselves Jewish, it can, you know, that they're not, you know, that they're clearly not Torah observant. I think that that doesn't fit with what we see in Hebrews personally. Um, but then it's, it's also has to do with uh, just the ways that the evidence is read. And it's, it's actually pretty flimsy. 
um, what, what they're taking to be this kind of reversion mentality and stuff. So that's, that's the thing that I, I, I want to go away the fastest. Um, because I think that it has some really harmful implications for how we read Hebrews. Um, cause that is something that we, you know, we read through and think, oh, okay. Um, the author is worried that they're going to keep doing sacrifices. The author is worried that they're going to keep following dietary restrictions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we read various passages in line of that. And so that's where a lot of the really supersessionist readings and, or anti-Jewish readings of Hebrews um, come in. And, um, and yeah, so that's, that's my answer for sure. Okay. Well, we're, uh, we're 25 minutes in already. So I'm going to let Chad give a synopsis of his paper. Madison, let you respond. And then if I think of a interesting question, I may jump in. So Chad, why don't you, why don't you take it off? Uh, my paper was titled, uh, Bear with this Anonymous Exhortation. Uh, so here I'm examining the possible hermeneutical effect that anonymous authorship might have uh, if we just, uh, for the sake of argument, assume that anonymous uh, texts are in the New Testament. Uh, what if possible effects might they have for the earliest and latest readers uh, of the New Testament? Um, that's another coping mechanism I have is I usually write a thesis, and then um, as I get closer to presenting it, I just hedge it. So let's say something like exploring, or my favorite is toward. So like not toward a discussion of possible hermeneutical effects that could uh, be the case if we assume that uh, anonymous sex are there. Uh, but one of the things that I tried to do is distinguish between the concepts of anonymity and pseudonymity. Um, so some people at the conference thought that was really important. Others thought it was uh, not as important to distinguish those. Um, so part of that is because uh, as an attempt to kind of sidestep some of the uh, uh, common arguments about uh, pseudonymity. Um, so the issue of whether there are pseudo pseudepigraphal works in the New Testament is perennial, perennially contested, uh, but the issue of anonymity is less controversial, but sometimes neglected as a uh, interesting historical uh, hermeneutical issue. Uh, so my modest goal was just to suggest that anonymity might have a rhetorical or hermeneutical effect on readers, uh, especially if we might be able to determine that this, uh, the anonymity was intentional and not uh, incidental. Um, so even if we're not able to connect an anonymity to authorial intention, I was just exploring the possible effects that it has. Um, Harold Bloom once spoke of the anxiety of influence, talking about the way that uh, poets uh, navigate the idea of being influenced by their predecessors. Um, so I talked about in New Testament studies, there's oftentimes an anxiety of authorship. Um, so a very uh, hesitant uh, or is kind of fraught with difficulty when you talk about author, authorial intention. Um, so I started with the assumption that the Gospels are formally anonymous in the sense that in the text, in the body of the text itself, they don't uh, name themselves. Um, and then also First John and Hebrews as examples of uh, letters that start uh, without the normal epistolary conventions, uh, so with these brilliant opening sentences. Um, so uh, rather than a he said, see, she said situation, sometimes readers of the New Testament are faced with a he said, who said scenario. And uh, that went over here as 
about as well as it did in the conference when I presented it. We're, we're both smiling. We're just we're smiling. We're just not chuckling. Yeah, we're yeah, smiling. Just, <laughs> the Brits and the Australians just went hmm. Um, so, uh, so the the idea is that despite this formal anonymity, uh, each of these each of those writings that we could ca- categorize as uh, a- anonymous also foreground the idea or notion of authorship in some in, uh, particular way. So, for example, Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke starts with a prologue, uh, but doesn't name himself. So adopting some of the Greco-Roman biography conventions, but blending that with possibly a uh, convention of Old Testament historiography by not including the name. Um, So interesting uh, uh, coming together of genre conventions. Of course, John, at the end of his Gospel, says these things have been written um, so that you might believe. Um, so talking about, uh, forefronting the textual nature of, uh, of uh, the writings, uh, and of course Hebrews bear with this exhortation for I've written to you briefly. Um, so the, f- the four possible implications that I, uh, just considered was authorship, uh, anonymous authorship as a meaningful feature of genre choice. Um, so see, raising the possibility of a known author, producing an essentially anonymous text. Um, so if the author is known by the uh, first readers, what implications or, or what might that, uh, uh, what effect might that have if they uh, produce an anonymous text? Or the, here, the choice to write a narrative versus an epistle uh, is a choice to uh, present the notion of authorship in a particular way. Um, so a possible analogy here that I just gave uh, as a possibility is like an unnamed character in a narrative. Uh, it's possible that the author doesn't know who that narrative, uh, that character is, and that's why there's, it's not named. Uh, but it's also possible that there's an intentional rhetorical purpose for that pattern of naming. Um, so that would be an example of uh, the author, the readers, uh, and the first, uh, that original context might very well know those details. Uh, in that the the names of those, but it could be for a particular reason. So maybe the woman at the well or the beloved disciple, for example, in the Gospel of John. Um, so seeing that as a feature, anon- anonymous authorship, or at the very least here, I'm just talking about the way that the text presents uh, the notion of authorship. So the um, there's a paper, I think Steve Walton gave a paper on uh, the shape of Acts, Luke and Acts. So the the we passages in the book of Acts, uh, the function of those uh, as possible indicators of eyewitness testimony. Not to be confused with the we passage of Luke, which is the Zacchaeus narrative. Because he was so, a wee little, wee little man. Little man yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, is, <laughs> that wasn't discussed at the conference, so it was neglected. Um, but the we passages of Acts are interesting because there's, that, of course, that well-known shift between first person and third person narration. And so it's, you know, it's possible that it's a historical critical error, uh, that he was using a source and forgot as an incompetent author to switch back and to smooth it over, or he's signaling that he is using sources. And so he kept it in there. Or if he's, if you're thinking about a compositional strategy that includes the whole book, um, that there might be a purpose for that. Um, so that was just an idea there is the, anonymous anonymity as a meaningful choice uh, or feature of genre choice. And then I'll, I'll try to do this 
the rest more quickly, but anonymous authorship second as a meaningful feature of canonical location. So that was kind of what we were grappling with at the in the broader discussion as well is if these are anonymous texts, they are uh, have been collected in a reception history that clearly identifies names early and uncontested uh, uh, namings and titles, or at the very least with these names. Um, so if this is intentional, um, what what dynamic uh, could that play? And it's possible that the reason why we think that the Gospels are surprisingly anonymous is because we read them in a collection that sits right next to Paul, who uh, signals authorship in a very direct way alongside a uh, litany of, of co co-authors or co-laborers. Um, so if you're reading the Gospels in a collection that includes Paul's letters, you're going to, uh, the New Testament reader might notice a contrast between the way that authorship is uh, depicted. And then also like second century um, apocryphal gospels or pseudonymous gospels that um, have the attribution of, direct attribution of authorship as a, a dramatic part of their revelatory claim. I, Thomas, wrote this, or um, for example. So the gospels don't do that. Uh, so if this is intentional, the, my, my uh, idea that I throw out there is if this is intentional, it could, could possibly be a sign of canon consciousness where the, a New Testament author has chosen to write a narrative for the purpose of demonstrating that not just the words of Jesus are important, but also the narrative about his uh, ministry or the narrative about his death and resurrection are important as well. Um, and then also as a possible connection to uh, Old Testament historiography. So the prophetic history, which, is, which are anonymous texts that are inter and inter intertextual. Um, so uh, not if, if that is your primary um, uh, connecting point, then it's not a surprise as to at least the, the moves that the gospel writers are making. Um, so thinking about the gospel writers possibly shaping their narrative patterns on the prophetic history rather than only a Greco-Roman biography tradition, for example. Uh, the second, the, the, the final ones that I did was, it's kind of what we've already talked about before, as anonymous authorship in relation to historical reconstruction and then anonymous authorship in relation to divine discourse. Um, so uh, Anonymity itself forces a reader to navigate the issues of authorship, audience, provenance, and purpose in a slightly different manner than if you have a named author. Um, so it, it prompts a series of uh, questions that you have to work through uh, with an anonymous text. Uh, and so part of the uh, point here is that those particular questions are also in play even when there is a named author you're still having to think through, okay, well, how much of Paul's biography needs to be read into this uh, discussion or this conflict or something? So the example I used here was we have, uh, even in Paul's letters, we have uh, sometimes anonymous interlocutors. So sometimes Paul very directly says, this is what I'm addressing with these people, and this is why they are, I'm addressing them. And other times he talks uh, very uh, much more vague or unspecified. So, for example, the Colossian heresy, like what is Paul addressing in the letter to the Colossians? Um, 
it's possible that he doesn't know the nature of the threat. It's also possible that he does know it. It's much more likely that he does know exactly what he's addressing and the readers do, but he's chosen in the book of Colossians um, to leave it relatively unspecified, uh, which is a contrast to some of his other letters. So it's possible that the uh, identity of the uh, opponent or the issue in some letters is intentional and the essentially anonymous interlocutor is intentional. It could have a rhetorical or literary or theological effect uh, that naming the author or the specific situation would have uh, impacted the way that the shape of Colossians unfolds, uh, for example. And then finally, uh, I'm going along here, uh, the idea that if one of the effects of anonymous authorship could be um, that it emphasizes or is a way to highlight uh, double agency discourse that as you're reading a text that emphasizes speech uh, like in Hebrews or there has a uh, kind of homiletical elements or in the Gospels long blocks of Jesus's discourse um, it's well suited to the claim that this is not just the words of the author but it's uh, representing the word uh, divine discourse, that you're hearing the words of Jesus, even though you know that you're hearing the words of, of Matthew or the, uh, the, narrate, the narrator or, or Paul. So the mo my modest argument overall, uh, and all of these are, this is part of the issue of uh, doing something in a, like the New Testament or Old Testament biblical studies guilds. All of the claims, almost every term that is used is debatable and um, contested. But the modest argument uh, or claim that I was making is that the presence of anonymous texts in the New Testament are an opportunity to reconsider some of the factors of reading and interpretation that are always in play, but are sometimes unacknowledged or uh, unaccounted for. Um, so I liked, uh, related to what uh, Madison was saying a second ago, that historical reconstruction is often like uh, a Jenga tower uh, and some of these towers in biblical studies are very impressive, like a virtuoso performance. Like, wow, you walk into a room and there's a, a Jenga tower that's to the ceiling. You're like, that is amazing. <laughs> but it's like, oh, look at this this one down here. What if you pulled this one tiny little thing out here? Then it's like that impressive structure is going to uh, is going to collapse. Um, so. Um, that doesn't mean that historical reconstruction is necessarily uh, illegitimate, but it does mean, I, I think it should temper the way that we um, are, the amount of confidence we have in our historical reconstruction. And at the very least, that was kind of the point I was kind of pushing at. It should prompt us to at least be cautious or uh, mindful of how much of that uh, historical reconstruction is actually um, governing uh, the way that we are uh, seeing uh, what is in was in a particular text or something like that. So, yeah, that's. I think that's really um, a helpful place to to stop, Chad, because um, that was one of the things. So I didn't get to go to Chad's paper because they had two parallel sessions, and I think Chad was in my session at some point and got moved out. I was so disappointed, um, but he graciously sent me his paper after the fact, and. Um, <clears throat> I think he and I were wrestling with similar dynamics because um, I kind of opened by saying, 
you know, I tell my students that learning about the backgrounds is important, that understanding about the first century is really something that we need to do to be able to read scripture well or better or something like that. And but then what we're doing in this conference and in this conversation is saying that, yeah, we have to hold these historical reconstructions loosely. And so I I personally am still thinking through, you know, where we find that balance where we um, we tell our students, where we tell ourselves and those we interact with are, you know, the people that we preach to, you know, it's good for you to understand this thing about the first century. But there's some looseness that we have to hold. So um, when you were talking, Chad, it made me think of um, uh, in his um, Obeying the Truth, uh, John Barclay has a discussion about mirror reading that's that's become kind of programmatic. I believe it's in there. Um, and then Nije Gupta has followed up. And in Hebrews studies, uh, Brian Dyer has, has written a, a kind of third um, piece in this. And there, I'm sure there are others who interact with this concept. But each of them is saying, you know, from a methodological standpoint, how do we um, try to be more responsible in the way that we portray these historical reconstructions? You know, um, like I think uh, John Barclay talks about, you know, talking about things as possible versus plausible and has these various criteria and stuff. And I just think that's that's a useful reminder Mm -hmm. that we probably do need to be more careful, because as you say, there are these like incredible towers. I mean, if you think about the the significant movements in Pauline studies in particular over the last 50 years, the new perspective and now Paul within Judaism are effectively uh, ideologies or you know ways of reading Paul that are built on historical reconstructions. And one of the reasons that the new perspective is effectively dead is because the historical reconstruction on which it is built has now become, uh, you know, defunct, that we understand that there were various assumptions that those early proponents made that just don't work. And Paul within Judaism, you know, has taken the helpful parts of the new perspective and other even um, uh, traditional Pauline, you know, scholars have picked up pieces that that were probably helpful. um, And then they've moved in their own directions. But I do wonder, you know, when when will we learn something new and have to, you know, break off additional pieces of the reconstructions and, and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think that, I think that's a helpful point to note. And it's also one of the reasons why it's so difficult to critique, um, a historical background paradigm like Paul within Judaism or the new perspective on Paul, because it's yeah. not always about a piece of evidence, the interpretation of a particular text or a piece of evidence but it's the entire it's not necessarily what you're always thinking about it's the set of assumptions you're thinking with um which mm-hmm. makes it uh this is typically a historical discussion uh but it's um so the hermeneutical dis- dimension is often neglect- neglected as well uh, or uh related in a different way because oftentimes it's not like what is the significance of the Muratorian fragment or uh, was the significance of these titles? It's what are the assumptions that we're making uh, that they're not only dictating or affecting our conclusions, but they're also affecting what we're actually seeing. Um, I think one of the games that I play with my students, I hesitate to 
to you to talk about Hebrew scholarship uh, with Madison on on the podcast. But uh, yeah, if it was just me and uh, you know someone else, I would carry forth and hold, hold court on uh, Hebrew scholarship. But uh, not right now. Uh, but this, a, ga- a little game I play is um, talking about the temple in Hebrews mm. and how important uh, its relationship to Judaism is, um, and also important to complexify that relationship. Uh, but thinking about okay. Hebrews is talking about the sacrifices, so it's talking about the temple, right? And so I play this little game. It's like, oh, who can tell me a passage that's, uh, where's the temple show up in Hebrews? Uh, and then, of course, everybody raises their hand and say, okay, find it. Uh, and then, you know, they all go. And at first they had come up with all these passages. Um, oh, this is about the sacrificial system. Or it's like, okay, well, that's the sacrificial system. Okay, that's uh, something else. And like, where's the temple show up in Hebrews? And, of course, then they figure out what the game is. It's like, it's actually not there. It's talking about the tabernacle. Um, yeah. So even thinking about the dating question uh, in relation to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Um, but it's one of the things to note, too, is, like, if Hebrews is uh, the knowledge of the sacrificial system is a literary knowledge uh, drawing from the Pentateuch, uh, Leviticus and the portrayal of the Exodus and Exodus and Deuteronomy, um, then it doesn't uh, doesn't dictate a new conclusion, but it definitely uh, opens up different possibilities. So if it's specific, if the author of Hebrews is speaking and pointing to the temple that's standing right behind him or in the in the vicinity, well, that limits the set of associations you can make with uh, Jerusalem or Palestine area. But if he's pointing to Torah, well, Torah can travel. Torah can be in Antioch. Torah can be in uh, all over these, all these different places if the nature of his argument is based not necessarily on first, simple, first century Judaism, but the re- a particular reading of Torah, uh, then that could, at the very least, impact the way that the uh, historical background is um, presented or seen in, in relationship to that. Yeah. Um, so. the, um, another question that I had or, or something I wanted to wrestle through is um, the, I, I really appreciated Chad and I, I had something like this in my paper as well, talking about the differences between on the one hand, pseudepigraphy and anonymity, but also um, you know, what kinds of things, are stated, yeah, within the canon and and what things are actually found in tradition. And one of the reasons, you know, with my TED students in particular that I always liked to point this out is because it's, it really is different to say that Paul didn't write second Timothy than it is to say that John didn't write first John or Luke didn't write Luke because it is stated in the text. And so Mm -hmm. what I wanted to pull them through on is to say that, you know, as as sadly anti-Catholic as num- a number of you are, some of these positions are actually part of tradition. And tradition, of course, in a different way than our Catholic brothers and sisters understand. But, you know, we're pulling from the history of interpretation and all of that when we say that John is the beloved disciple or John wrote first John or second John or third John. Even, you know, with the elder is, is John is not named in second and third John, the elder is. And so who the elder is, is, is another kind of thing. So 
you know, I think that's an that's an important distinction. So I in my paper, I tried to to distinguish between rhetorical anonymity, which would be where um, you have there's no name affixed to a text like Hebrews. Um, and then something like historical anonymity. And I think Hebrews is not a historically anonymous document. Um, I think it's pretty clear that whoever received Hebrews knew who wrote it. And the same with Luke. I mean, uh, I think I do think Luke is the you know likely author of the gospel and Acts. Um, but his name is not fixed there. But I think one of the reasons that the tradition with Luke Acts is so strong is because people were aware of that. And it has a clear recipient and a provenance and all of that, that that makes sense. And so, you know, Hebrews is really pretty exceptional in this regard because the traditions around authorship, although some people say that, you know, Paul is the clear favorite early on and that, you know, it's universal evidence and all of that. That's really not true. Um, there's in the earliest centuries of Christianity, there's a lot more ambiguity in, in the literature about who wrote Hebrews. And so that is a very different situation than it is for the other texts, where usually there's a pretty early on, you know, some kind of um, consensus. And then later there becomes questions. Maybe Second Peter is another, but obviously that, that there we're switching to something like pseudepigraphy or, or a possible uh, pseudepigraphy rather than anonymity. Um, so yeah, I just, I want to throw those out there, but also, you know, I wonder, Chad, um, one of the things that, that I've been wanting to ask you is about, um, the historical reconstructions, the reception of these texts and the, the reception of these texts within the canon, because I, I wonder how you feel about associating Hebrews with the Pauline corpus and in what ways you might want to say it is Pauline or not, given the way that it was received and canonized and stuff. Yeah, I think that's excellent. I, first, I really like the way that you um, characterize rhetorical anonymity, because I think that that's a good label for what I was trying to grapple with, with like a, an unnamed character. Um, mm -hmm. It could be historical anonymity, like the author doesn't know or the readers don't know, but it could have a purpose. Um, so it's the same thing with a character or an interlocutor or perhaps even at the level of the composition as a whole. I thought that was really helpful. I almost, when I was revising and submitting the essay, I was I started to use it. I was like, well, I'll just, I don't want to like take some of these things from these conversations and then embed it into the uh, paper that's submitted for the, uh, for the book as if like, oh yeah, that's what I had originally thought in the paper as well. Um, so I re refrained from doing that. Uh, but I thought I thought that was a, a helpful uh, point, and I think uh, your point about the effect of reception history uh, sometimes is unacknowledged. Um, so, uh, especially for readers, uh, mm -hmm. but it, that discussion I think does prompt or demonstrate at the very least the effect that both canonical reception or collection has on readers as. Uh, if you're going to think about the nature of Hebrews in the new t within the scope of the New Testament, you're going to be thinking, how does this relate to Paul, and how does this relate to the rest of the New Testament? Um, because I think that's one of the things that you see in the manuscript evidence, and of course, I'd love to hear uh, you correct me if I'm wrong on some any of this, with Hebrews is thinking about the, its, its movement 
it moves towards the end of the Pauline corpus, but never it's never circulated apart from the Pauline corpus. Um, so that's a, a dual demonstration that there were questions about the association with Paul, uh, but they weren't strong enough to exclude Hebrews from uh, the Pauline corpus uh, for the most part. Um, so Hebrews at the in, end of the uh, Pauline corpus, so even in our... Um, our New Testaments today, the reason that Paul follows Philemon is because it's still connected to the Pauline corpus um, in that sense. So even the, the Tyndale Greek New Testament moves uh, moves some things around, um, but it's, it's still connected to the, the Pauline corpus. And so I think that represents uh, the, uh, the early and continued uh, connection between Hebrews and Paul's letters, but also a clear empirical demonstration that there was um, also concerns to, to read it on its own terms within its own idiom um, in relation to either the rest of the New Testament or, um, at the very least, uh, flagging that there are uh, discussions or issues about this. And you can see that in like Eusebius's discussion of of the canon or the New Testament letters and then also within the manuscript tradition itself. Let me ask yeah. you guys this. Uh, this is kind of related to some of this conversation about um, authorship and authority and we know who wrote it and tradition and all that kind of stuff. You know, one of the big sort of defaults a lot of people go to is the reason why we consider these books to be canonical is at least in part because they're either um, they have apostolic authorship or the authorship is... Uh, you know, an associate, so Mark or somebody like that, right, who, who, who's a known associate of an apostle. Um, how much do you guys think at the end of the day the authorship and authority question go together, right? Because this is, tends to be a pretty big argument for the authority of the canon that we have. So maybe, Madison, you can start, um, and then, Chad, you can follow up. Just kind of big-picture thoughts. How, how important is that? How do we – is that – can we still demonstrate the authority of Hebrews if we don't know who wrote it, right? That's one of these, – these types of questions, or First John or – or uh, second John or yeah. whatever. So yeah, just some of those questions. Yeah. Um, let's see. I, I'd love, I'm definitely keen to hear what, what Shed says. So if he contradicts me in any way, then just throw whatever I say out the window. Um, so this is one of the conversations we had at the conference. Uh, Murray Smith um, in particular was pushing towards the idea that every text in the new Testament is apostolic. Um, though I think he would follow up and say, though they're not all apostolic in the same way. And so I think that the two categories that you've pointed out that we have one apostles who are writing or two, um, we have affiliates or um, those connected to apostolic tradition that they would be, that would be the two kind of categories. And again, Chad, please feel free to nuance this if I've missed out on Murray's argument or anything. But so for Hebrews, he would say that Hebrews 2, 3, or at least somewhere in Hebrews 2, 1 to 4, that it says that... Um, those who have heard that that we received what those who heard from the Lord um, passed on. And so effectively, this is, you know, generally in Hebrew scholarship, this is an idea that they're second generation. But I don't know. I don't know that it's a clear indication of chronology. It's at least a, a, an idea of separation from the present or from those who walked with Jesus. And so they are not you know, whoever's writing is not apostolic, the recipients are not apostolic, but they have a connection to those who first heard from Jesus. 
So that would be the connection there. But in terms of the the bigger question that you're posing, um, the relationship between authorship and, and authority, I actually kind of wonder if we're able to answer that question now. Um, because in, in my understanding, this is maybe where, where Chet and I would might disagree. Um, I, I think of the canonical process as, um, you know, the, the ways that texts are produced, though I think that what... Um, Though I think there's a more kind of flexible understanding for me about the idea, the idea of cooperation among authors, like co-senders, like some kind of Johannine community that may be involved in something like John 21, uh, the whoever, you know, may have added something about Moses's death in the Pentateuch. I mean, these kinds of redactional layers where we ha- we might have a one single important author like Paul or Moses or John, uh, but then we have others involved in the compositional or redactional process. Um, I think that that's a, you know, a pretty standard explanation, though I don't know that we always articulate it. So that would be the first layer, that God was involved in the production of the text. And that's generally the way that I would talk about it, because I would want it to be as flexible as some of what I've said here. But then I also would talk about God being involved in the transmission and preservation of the text, and especially in the form that we have it. And this is, of course, important to me for a lot of different reasons, for manuscript studies, for canonicity, for, you know, various other things. And so now what has been preserved for us are these texts. And so this is why I would say that there's an extent to which asking that question about the first centuries is harder for us, because we would say that these texts were received as helpful and I think authoritative. And so we use them. But we're not at this point, if we find out that Hebrews was written by some rando in Ephesus, we're not going to, like, excise it from the canon. I mean, if you do, it'll be over my dead body. Um, <laughs> so so I, I think that this conversation is a little difficult from, from my perspective, and maybe I'm problematizing more than I need to. But again, I'd be keen to hear where Ched might want to push back or nuance some of what I've said. No, I think, I think that um, you raise a lot of the important issues of uh of the discussion i think uh that was one of my favorite parts of the conferences uh we, they did the little the panels uh, with you murray murray smith and um simon Gathercole, um uh and then just kind of thinking through some of the questions about authorship and apostolicity uh, that in particular, when we start talking about these types of broader issues is where we kind of get back to the uh, whatever our first few layers are on the Jenga board. They might be the same pieces, but you know, if we if we if they're all stacked on top of each other or if they're like in a in a pattern or something, that's going to affect the way that we think of all of these questions. Yeah. Um, so I, I do think e- even as you're thinking about the relationship between authority and authorship. I do think the concept of authority is tied to uh, the notion of uh, apostolicity uh, for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. And this came up in some of those discussions as well. I think uh, a lot of the criteria for canonicity is probably the the worst expression. I I tend to think of these as um, uh, retrospective criteria for recognition um not just not just because of a contemporary confessional perspective but because it seems to me that that's the way that i read 
the discussions in the early churches. That's what how they were employing these uh, issues like uh, apostolicity, antiquity, orthodoxy, and um, widespread usage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are one cumulative and interlocking, of course, and you see different authors using them in different ways. Uh, but a lot of them s- swirl around the idea of the teaching of the apostles and the uh, proclamation and transmission of the like the, the early Christian teaching, the kerygma of the apostles. Uh, antiquity goes with the time of the apostles. Orthodoxy goes with the idea: does it cohere with the teaching of the apostle, uh, the teachings of the apostles, and uh, according to the scriptures? Um, so thinking about not just the uh, emphasis in the early church or the discussion about authorship, uh, but all of those retrospective criteria for recognition are swirling around this idea that of the preaching of the gospel according to the scriptures uh, then becomes the core concept that uh, is used to evaluate uh, people, uh, teachers, uh, but also writings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, uh, you know, depending on how you think the flow of early Christian history went, um, this is some of those interlocking pillars. So if we talk about external catalysts for canon, um, and that, that's one of the things I think is helpful is to shift not only thinking about the criteria for recognition, but also the catalyst for um, canon. Would there have been a New Testament without false teachers or without a need to set boundaries. Um, a lot of the participants in our conference would say no, that it was external catalysts of the fourth century. Um, but I think if you allow the idea of internal catalysts, that not only was the canon pu- pulled by external factors, but also pushed by something uh, internal, um, so I would locate that as a uh, you know the Great Commission impulse of teach them, uh, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and teach them all the things that I've commanded commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So you get this idea of community, but also uh, the idea of uh, teaching that's been passed along. And then Matthew's gospel, lo and behold, is the means by which you fulfill the Great Commission, because it has large blocks of Jesus's discourse mm. um, and a kind of a, a impulse to make disciples. Um, so this idea of the re- one of the reasons why there's a collection of uh, biblical texts is for the purpose of discipleship um, and also for the purpose of uh, uh, a natural organic response to new revelation of a new covenant. Um, so the primary prompters of written text in the Old Testament era is the ex- exodus and the exile. Um, two major events of God's salvation and judgment on Israel, and it prompts a narration and interpretation of that redemptive history. And so this is one of those things about the uh, reconstruction of the early church. If there was a stable Hebrew Bible, or however you want to uh, call that, if there was a Hebrew law, prophets, and writings at the time of the New Testament, then in my view, that means that there's already a precedent for a stable uh, literary body of text um, so that it, in my formulation the New Testament was never without a canon uh, because even the earliest creeds that we have are the proclamation of the gospel according to the scriptures so there was 
uh, in New Testament studies, we talk about this long process for the textualization of the tradition. But part of what I want to say is that even in the earliest forms of the kerygma, there's always a textual element because uh, it's always according to the scriptures. So at the very least, I think that's evidence that you can say that there at least the concept of canon, the concept of authoritative uh, collection of texts functioning as a rule, um, as a way of ruling out some things and ruling in others is present early. Um, so that's... Uh, doesn't focus primarily on figuring out authorship, but it's one of those factors uh, that requires you to answer a whole host of things about what took place in the in the uh, early earliest churches. Um, so that's what was that's what's fascinating to me about the discussion here. Is a, uh, this conference is a, a New Testament Guild conference in some ways. Um, but the questions that it prompts are ones that require the full scope of the disciplines to even talk about. Well, it's interesting you were, you were bringing up, too, the, the idea of external forces and internal forces. You know, this is controversial in some uh, circles, but, you know, this idea that we only have the canon because of heretics or uh, we only have the doctrine of the Trinity because of heretics. And it's interesting if you, I mean, at least in my view, if you read... Um, the sources, part of the reason why Irenaeus knows the Gnostics are wrong is because there's already an assumed apostolic tradition. There's already some sort of a kerygma, a set of principles to say, no, that's not right. Like, you know, th this, this gospel that says that Jesus was a petulant teenager who smited kids who picked on him, you know, it's like, that doesn't seem to fit with what we have already received, you know, or, you know, that's a, that's an extreme example, but, you know, Jesus having a relationship with Mary Magdalene or these different things. It's not like, Irenaeus is sitting around going, well, we should probably debate this. He's saying, no, you're wrong because of X, Y, Z. Or when you get to Arius, you know, kind of popping up uh, in the fourth century and, you know, five years, uh, four years before the Council of Nicaea, the synod in Africa that Alexander uh, led as well brings Arius and they all say, no, Arius, you're wrong. We, this is because we're already teaching this. We already believe this. So we can spot what's wrong because we already have a set standard, a, a set set of boundaries. So that's an interesting conversation that comes out of it too, right? Is sort of um, when you're reading the first Christians, quote unquote, the apostolic fathers and after, they seem to already have a pretty good idea of what they consider to be canonical. There's obviously questions about uh, certain books and stuff like that, right? And you've got Origen talking about how there's still some dispute about some books, but that seems to be overblown in some circles as, well, the early church didn't know what their Bible was because there's like a couple of questions. Probably the reason why there's questions is because uh, they didn't have the printing press and not everybody had access to everything. Um, but also there's the, part of the reason why there's questions is because they actually care enough to make sure that they're being um, rigorous in what they would consider to be authoritative and not, right? So maybe uh, just if you guys want to respond, we're, we're at an hour at this point already, but um, if you guys want to maybe give kind of like just a closing response to that of sort of uh, the text that we have, why we consider it authoritative, why, why do we believe this is our Bible and we stake our lives on it, um, maybe just give kind of a, a closing reflection on, on that big question. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in briefly if, if that's okay, because again, I assume that Chad will just clean up my mess. Um, but I, um, I mean, yeah, I think that I, I do think that the maybe this is like super on brand for me, but I think that um, portraying the canon in terms of combat and conflict is is troubling to me because I think that it 
it assumes that there wasn't the recognition of what is good in these texts before yeah. that. That it's like, let's yeah. decide that these texts are helpful because they address a problem rather than these texts are good and useful and they were shaping early Christianity. And then there were some issues around the boundaries that had to be clarified. And so this is where, yeah, I wonder, I think about canon. I, I think that um, uh, Chad used the language of widespread use. I think that's the, the terminology that you used. And, and that's a, an important category for me that I think is sometimes um, underrepresented in some of our discussions of canonization is that there, there was already a distribution of texts. There was already a use of texts in various places. And then there were some conversations, you know, um, there, uh, I'm, I'm going to forget the details. So I'm going to say this generally, you know, there's a conversation represented in the early literature about gospel of Peter. And, you know, one of the bishops says, you know, we personally only use parts of it, but we know others think that it's helpful. And so, you know, be careful or something like that. Yeah. So that's, that's recognition that there's discussions again on the margins or on the boundaries. And that does take place with some of our texts that are, are canonized. Um, and it takes place with some texts that ultimately aren't. And so, but the core of the canon, especially in the New Testament, was stable. And I, I don't, I, you know, I think I'd want to think more about what it means for them to say, like, we have Hebrew Bible, um, and now we need more, or now we need this. Because um, I think that that's, that's one of the discussions that I, I'm still thinking through. You know, what does it look like for them to say, our Jewish texts aren't enough, or Torah is not enough, and we need this. Um, but, uh, but on the whole, I, I, I think that it has to do with the fact that they're like, we're using these texts, and we want to have a list that helps others to guard against false teaching. So yeah. I hope that's remotely helpful. All right, Chad, final, final thoughts. That's great. Oh, man, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> yeah, to jump back to what you said earlier, I think the uh, for there to be, I, mean, I guess this is crass, but uh, crassly put, but uh, uh, for there to be a, uh, a challenge to the status quo, there has to be a quo to begin with. Like there has to be something that is, is there. And so I think Madison's, your comment about a core canon uh, or a core collection of uh whether that's teaching or a collection of uh, New Testament writings uh, or apostolic writings that are being received as such, uh, I think that's a, an important concept. So if you if you allow for a uh, relatively stable uh, Hebrew scriptures and a early core canon or core collection of gospel and epistle, uh, the Gospels and Paul, uh, that doesn't solve all of the the issues because it's, it's, it's still messy, um, but it's, um, it's not a um, completely random, um, uncontrollable mess. It's like when you walk into the house and say, well, this house is a mess, but it's really, really just need to pick up a few things um, where uh, there's order in the, uh, within the messiness of the historical process. So if there's a core canon and a relatively stable Hebrew scriptures, then the churches do have something uh, that they're able to uh, use to adjudicate uh, the boundaries uh, or the fringes of the New Testament uh, or just the nature of uh, claims that people are making. And, so, and that's not instantaneous. And so that's one of the reasons why you see this uh, long process of thinking through. Uh, but I would say that that is 
the the churches are thinking through what has been theirs, uh, which has been their possession in the preaching of the gospel according to the scriptures from the from the beginning. Um, whether you th- whether that's from the uh, p- directly after the resurrection, or uh, as you're thinking about the uh, earliest churches as they're uh, receiving the writings of the New Testament alongside of the the reading of the scriptures um, in their early gatherings or, th- or things like that. So I think. The, you see the connection between questions of authorship, questions of composition, and questions of canon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just it's really fun to me and interesting, and some, some in some ways encourages my faith to read like Clement, you know, First Clement, who I think most people agree was written toward the end of the first century, uh, pot- potentially being written at the same time that jo- that John is writing Revelation, perhaps right. And he's already quoting all these Pauline epistles. He's quoting gospels. He's already, I mean, the, can, the, the quote unquote, yeah, Hebrews, like the, the quote unquote canon is not closed yet in, in that sense, right? Or it's, it's not even, there's still questions. And yet there's already, like you guys are saying, this core set of texts that Clement's quoting, Ignatius is quoting. I think he quotes almost every one of Paul's letters and Hebrews by the time his seven undis- relatively undisputed letters are, are seen. So to me, that's kind of encouraging. You know, I, I talked to students about this, you know, there's the the stuff you see on YouTube about how the, the Christians didn't know what the Bible was and, you know, Constantine invented Christianity and what, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, even on, you know, Joe Rogan's podcast a while back, I saw a clip going around where he was talking to the, the daughter of Fred Phelps, who founded the Westboro, uh, quote, quote unquote, Baptist, quote unquote, church. Um, and he was saying, well, we all know Constantine wrote the New Testament, like the fourth century, right? So ha ha ha. And it's like, no, actually, we don't know that. That's, that's, that shows how little you know about what's actually happening, right? So that's always encouraging to me just to sort of point out the fact that the church did, generally speaking, know what their texts were and what their teaching was, and that, that was how they were able to preserve it, uh, of course, under the guidance of the Spirit. So, all right, guys, well, let's uh, let's close there. Thank you guys for doing this. It was a, a fun conversation and uh, enjoyed listening to both of you guys kind of work through that. So thanks for doing it. Thanks, Brandon. Good to be here. Good to see you, Chad. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon.